We've been in a series this Christmas about light, and we've been talking about the power of light, how Jesus is the light of the world. The first week, Pastor Cooper talked about how mankind is created in light. Last week, uh, I preached in the dark. If you were not here last week, you missed a monumental service on Sunday morning. I talked about the darkness, and I preached in the dark. In fact, uh, last week, I have a pastor's lunch that I go to, and we just talk about stuff as pastors, and I told them I preached in the dark. One of them said, well, Mark, you've been in the dark for a long time. That doesn't surprise me. But they said, seriously, no lights on? Yeah, no lights on. They're all, how'd that go? Talked about it, and they said, how long? Like 30 seconds? No, like 12 minutes. They were like dumbfounded that I would preach in the dark. But it was great, right? Those that came were reminded that Jesus is the light of the world. Today... I'd like us to talk about this phrase that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's a bold claim, but many people make bold claims, don't they? Some claims go unnoticed. Some claims like this one are monumental, life-changing, can alter the course of nations and planets. I was thinking as I prepared for my message that in our culture, we have a lot of people that make bold claims, and I think most of them are athletes, right? Most athletes make bold claims, and I think fans make bold claims. Like, let me just, let, let me give you one. What if I made a bold claim like the 49ers are going to beat the Seahawks today? <laughs> right? Like, I know you don't like that, and some people don't like that. Some people don't like the bold claim that Jesus is the light of the world. But I guarantee you there's 54 athletes in San Francisco right now that are getting ready to come out of a locker room, and they believe that claim. Now, I will tell you this morning that that claim is lame and probably won't come true, but we like our athletes to be bold and to share and to want to win, right? Bold claims are not uncommon, and we like them. If you're a Generation Xer like me, then you probably remember another claim that's been with us since the 70s. Luke, I am your father. Right? I mean, we like bold claims. We like these things. Sometimes the claims are about ourselves, like Jesus was. I've made this claim before. I am your father. That's why you're going to do that. Or I am your coach. That's why you're running. Maybe some of you have said, because I'm the owner of the business. That's why we're doing this. We always make claims about ourselves. But Jesus made some bold claims. He made some radical claims. He said some things that were pretty profound and pretty challenging for us to believe. For instance, probably the most bold claim that Jesus made was that he would die and then he would come back to life. But then he did it. And when he did that, it kind of took everybody back. It takes us back still to this day, 2,000 years later, that somebody died and is still alive today because they came back from the dead and have conquered death for you and me. Now, once Jesus made that claim that he would die and rise again, and he did it, it sure makes it a lot easier to see that the other claims he made are also the truth. That his truth that he is the light of the world is also a true claim. Now, most of these statements in the Bible are called I am statements. That's their theological term. 
Throughout the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see several I am statements. They're stories, they're points of reference where Jesus said something about himself and that promise and that declaration was something that each of us need to study and look into and understand what Jesus was saying about himself, about how we relate to him, and what we need to believe about him with that statement. Let me give you several that he said. He said, I am the bread of life. He said to Pilate, I am a king. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am God's son. I am the true vine and you are the branches. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now each statement has its own promises, its own fulfillment, and its own purpose in our life and in Jesus' life as we believe it. Today, I want us to focus on the I am statement Jesus made about light since our theme this Christmas is about light when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So as we begin to look into this and study it, let's start with just a quick word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts right now to the truth from your word that you are the light of the world. May we understand it, believe it, and begin to live it out in our lives and find ways to put into practice the fact that you are light, that our world is in darkness and we need you to come into the middle of it and heal it and restore it and save it. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would start with us. If we need saving, you would save us this morning. If we need healing, you would heal us this morning. If we need your light to come into some dark area of our life, would we let you in this morning so that you can do a work in us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to break down this phrase into three sections because there's really three parts of the phrase, I am the light of the world. And as we break down the three sections, I want to reveal to you the truth about each part of them and how powerful they are according to God's word and should be in our life. The first part of the phrase is just a little little phrase. It's simply this. Jesus said, I am. Oh, it doesn't sound that monumental. It doesn't sound like that big a deal, but actually it's enormous. This is a huge deal that Jesus said, I am. Now today we have a popular spiritual idea in our culture and the popular spiritual idea in our culture is that there are lots of ways to get to heaven. But there are lots of ways to get into eternity. But Jesus said the opposite. In fact, the Bible says the opposite over and over again. The Bible declares that there's only one way to get to heaven. And that is that you must have a real, life-changing, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus said, I am. And what Jesus was declaring is, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. 
What Jesus is also saying is no one else is. Only I am the light of the world, but also the savior of the world. What Jesus is saying is no one else is the light of the world. No one else has the power to destroy death, to destroy darkness, to live forever. No one can give salvation to mankind except me. No one can heal the human condition except me. No one can solve all of your problems and all of your issues except me. Now, throughout history, there have been several people that have made this declaration, haven't there? Lots of different religious leaders, lots of different people. Some of them were very good actual leaders. They rallied lots of people around them. Some people are still even following those people and they're now dead. The challenge though is they're not alive. Some people are following a dead person. You and I, when we follow Jesus Christ, we don't follow a dead person. We follow a living person who can take us into eternity because not only did he conquer death for himself, but he conquers it for you and me, amen? When you follow somebody else other than Jesus Christ, you follow a simple dead person. It's like following grandma. Do you believe grandma can take you to heaven? No, she can't. Only Jesus can. Therefore, Jesus said, I am. Now, I am is also a prophetic statement, and it's a statement that Jesus is fulfilling because prophecy is an important part of life. Prophecy is very powerful. It's when God says something, most of the time in the past, and it comes to realization in the present, or some of it's still to come in the future. So God will say something earlier, and sometimes it's 10 years earlier, sometimes it's 100 or 1,000, and then it comes to pass, and in that moment when the prophecy is answered and revealed, and everybody's eyes are opened, and we all get this big aha moment, we all realize, wait, God said that a long time ago. So what's happening right now must be true. What's happening right now must be the truth, and I must choose right in this moment to believe whether or not God is real or a lie and whether to serve him or serve myself. That's what prophecy does for us. Well, in the Bible, we have tons of prophecy. I mean, there's prophecy all over the place, everywhere. Some of it has already taken place and already come to pass. Some of it is still to come to pass. As you and I read the entire book of Revelation, all of that is still in the future somewhere. Now, it could be tomorrow, or it could be 10 years from now. We don't know, but it's coming. How do we know it's coming? Because he's already answered all of the other thousands of prophecies before the book of Revelation. How does this relate to the I am statement? Well, let me show you. Jesus had hundreds of specific prophecies given about his life. Some say nearly 300, some say less, some say more. We can use 300 as a good number because it's right in the middle. So there's about 300 prophecies about Jesus' birth, about his life, about his teachings, about his death and his resurrection. And he fulfilled all of them. Now mathematically, it's, it's like an impossible number that you could fulfill 300 prophecies. I mean, the 
If we put it to a ratio or to some sort of mathematical equation, it would be a one with a multitude of zeros past it that is probably a number bigger than our calculator. If you could actually fulfill all 300. Let me give you a more modern day example. What if I came over to your house and I told you I have a friend with me. My friend comes in the door with me and I say, this is my friend, Bob. Bob has been in 300 car accidents and never been hurt. What would you say? Really? <laughs> Pastor Mark, isn't that a little far-fetched? 300 car accidents. For instance, let's just take a little poll. Anybody in the room been in more than 10? Okay, nobody. We had one person in first service. So we took their driver's license away. <laughs> okay, how about five? Anybody more than five? Really? Nope. Okay, we gotta have one. Okay, two. Okay. Is that a third? Anybody else? Okay, so that was two men to one woman. I just wanted to point that out because <laughs> women, I know you've gotten a bad rap over time. By the way, in first service, it was way lopsided. It was one woman and a whole bunch of men. And so women, I just want to let you off the hook. Maybe, it's a maybe, because this isn't a good test, but maybe you are better drivers than us. <laughs> I'm not going to go all the way out to say that yet, but uh, I, it's close. So we've got some people in the room with five. I've got one, if you don't count bike with car. If you count bike with car, then I have four. <laughs> That's another, those are four other stories for another day. But now that it's out of the bag, it'll be fun when I tell it later, right? What if I told you, my friend Bob, he can show you a picture of every single accident. And you sit down with him, and on his smartphone, he shows you 300 pictures of every accident. Now what would you have to say? Oh, okay, Bob was telling the truth. He does not know how to drive at all. In this book, there are 300 literary pictures that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is the light of the world. We could open it up and we could read 300 different times where it says something about a man that would come and he would be born in Bethlehem or something like that. 300 different references and Jesus fulfilled them all. Now that means for you and I and every person on the planet that we all have to come to a conclusion that Jesus is a different man than the rest of us. And maybe he's not a man at all. Maybe he's God. Now let me give you just a quick example of this. I'll show you seven prophecies that are fulfilled at Jesus' birth. 
Now, I'm only going to show you seven just because these are the, like, like the most popular ones, so they'll make sense and you'll all get it really easily. But there are more. The first one is that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the light of the world, would need to be a seed of Abraham. In other words, he'd have to be part of the family that came, that was related to Abraham. Okay, so in other words, you would have to be a Jew. You'd have to be an Israelite. Now, that one's not too hard, right? Like there's, there's millions of men in the world that, have been, that are Jewish and that is, are Israelites. So that's not that big of a deal, but it gets narrowed down. Second, that, that one, by the way, is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. In 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, we have the prophecy that the Messiah would have to be in the family of David. So now... He's got to be related to Abraham, which may be in the millions, but now you got to be related. So your great, 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 great grandpa has got to be King David. Whoa, now we've narrowed it down a lot further to maybe tens of thousands. But then we get to a third one. In Micah 5.2, in Genesis 35, 36, the prophecy is revealed that the Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem. Now we've narrowed it down some. How many boys are of the same family of Abraham and the same family of David that were born in Bethlehem? Well, we've probably narrowed it down to less, right? Now we're, we're, getting, we're getting closer. We're getting narrower. And then there's number four. That this boy, according to Jeremiah 31, 15, when this boy would be born... Unfortunately, it would lead to the murder of Bethlehem's children. Okay, well, now we've really narrowed it down. Because like every time every boy is born in Bethlehem, does every baby die in Bethlehem? No, that's not how it works. Now we've narrowed it down to maybe one or two that have been born, and as a result of their birth, the king was so terrified and afraid that that young boy might grow up and usurp him, that he would kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Now we're talking about a very, very, very select few, maybe one, maybe two. So we're maybe in the realm of probability right now with these four, but we're about ready to get into the realm of impossible. Because the fifth one is from Isaiah 7:14, where the prophecy says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning to give a sex talk, but let's just say that that is impossible. Could we go there? Could we just say that if a man, I said I wasn't going to give you the sex talk. Let's just say that that's impossible. Unless God does it. Unless God does a miracle. <laughs> That's the only way. So now we're out of the realm of physical human probability, and we've now gone into the realm of the impossible, because nobody can be born of a virgin. And we haven't even gotten to the next impossibility, which is from Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which says the Messiah would be Emmanuel. In other words, the Messiah would actually be God with us. So we're not now in the realm of millions of boys. We're now down to one. 
one boy. That would be of the family of Abraham, of the line of David, born in Bethlehem. His birth would lead to the murder of innocent children in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin, and he would be God. We've now narrowed it down to one. And there's lots of other ones, like Hosea 11.1, that says that the Messiah would come out of Egypt, and Jesus did that too. You'll remember that the night before all the boys were killed, an angel visited Joseph and Mary and told them to get all their stuff quickly and leave and move to Egypt. And so they moved to Egypt. And then when Herod had died, an angel visited him again, and they left Egypt and they moved to Galilee. Well, this is only seven. There's 293 more. Should we keep going? We don't need to because we've already gone to the realm of the impossible. So now if you have impossible and you just add to it, do you have impossibler? That's not even a word. All we have to know is it's just even more impossible. When Jesus says, I am, what he is saying is prophetically and mathematically, there's no other way. There's only me. There's no one else. I am the light of the world. Now let me close with one more thought about Jesus' declaration that I think is important. Jesus made this declaration all the time. I am. And then he would fill it in with something else. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd. Over and over again. These different moments where Jesus would have thousands of people around him and he would be teaching and he would declare something, but he would start the phrase with I am. Why is that significant? It's significant because of Exodus chapter 3. There are two miraculous, marvelous, great stories of deliverance of God's people that we can find in the Bible. The first one is the story of the Israelites being rescued from Egypt. We, we all know the story. It's miraculous. It's marvelous. It's this amazing story about how God uses Moses to be a leader, to come back to Egypt. You know the story, all the plagues, everybody gets out, all the stuff. It's awesome, right? But here's what's interesting. In Exodus chapter 3, God comes to Moses, the story of the burning bush, and here's this bush that's not burning, and Moses goes and takes his sandals off, and he realizes he's in the presence of God, and God calls Moses to go be the leader, to lead the people out of Israel, but in this conversation with God, all Moses does is give him a ton of excuses about how he cannot be used by God. Anybody know what that's like? <laughs> Anybody else give an excuse to God about why he shouldn't use you, about why he shouldn't love you, about why he shouldn't forgive you? And you give God all these excuses and God just comes up with all these answers about why he's going to bless you anyway. Because he loves you. That's what God was doing with Moses. Moses had all these excuses, but I want to show you the excuse that Moses had in verse 13 and 14. Look at it with me. You can follow me on the screen. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Why is this significant? Because when God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, he told Moses to use his name, I am. And when Jesus comes on the scene thousands of years later and he gets ready to go die on the cross and deliver all mankind from their sins, what phrase does he use? I am. I am the savior of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. This phrase is monumental. It's life-changing and could change anyone on our planet when we believe it. That Jesus said, I am. The second part of the phrase is the light. Jesus calls himself the light. And we've been talking about this for weeks, this understanding of light and darkness, and it helps reveal to us reasons why Jesus called himself the light. And we understand this concept of light and darkness and good versus evil and right versus wrong. And all of that's probably firmly placed in our mind. And we often use this comparison of light and darkness. But before I, I look at that, I'd like to read John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. But I'm going to read it from the message version this morning. John three sixteen, that famous verse that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to it from the message version, but also listen to the rest of the section as the, the translator talks about Godlight, Jesus Christ himself who came into the world. It reads like this. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because that person's failures to believe in the one-of-a-kind son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. God-light streamed into the world. But men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates Godlight and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. 
But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. See, in these verses, it becomes very clear that God is revealing who he is. He's revealing what he thinks and how he believes. He's revealing that when Jesus came, light streamed into our world. And this light that came was a light of love for all mankind. In John 9, 5, Jesus repeated himself. He said, I, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, let me share two reasons why Jesus called himself light. The first one is this light and dark comparison. It's this idea that we all have that darkness is, is attached to evil and light is attached to good. And Jesus calls himself light, obviously, because he is ultimate goodness in the universe. And because he comes to destroy the darkness that we so often allow in our lives and that keeps us from having relationship with God. Now, we talked about that last week, but it bears a little bit of repeating. We're in darkness because of our sin, because the enemy of our soul attacks us and tries to keep us in darkness so that we never live in the light of Jesus Christ. And as long as we never live in the light of Jesus Christ, we're never saved, we're never whole, we're never healed. But when we embrace the darkness, we learn that the light is so far from us. But as soon as we embrace Jesus Christ, we embrace truth, we embrace grace, we embrace salvation, we embrace his love, and we instantly and immediately understand that we must live in the light and in the darkness no longer. Now, John 3 does a great job of showing us and giving us insights into this light and dark comparison. It also does a great job of showing us how living the Christian life is often countercultural and that some of the viewpoints of who God is culturally are simply just not true. For instance, the first thing that this verse says is that God loves the world. God loves the world. But so many times what I hear from media outlets and other uh, social outlets in our culture is that God hates the world. But we don't really find that in the Bible very often. We often find over and over again is that God loves the world and that's why he went to the cross for the world. It's also kind of one of those common sense things like for instance, do you give any money to anybody you hate? No. So if you don't give money to people you hate, why in the world would you die for them? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's kind of silly even. If we believe Jesus died for people that he hated, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do such a thing? You'd just wipe them out because you can. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that God hates anybody. He loves everybody. And this verse says he didn't want us to be destroyed by death and darkness. So that's why he left this throne in heaven to come here. He wants to give us life. He doesn't want us to see us living the way we are living, where we let sin devastate families and cultures and people and our planet. He wants something better for us. 
He wants that to happen and take place, but he also knows that you and I are created in the image of God. That means that you and I have choice. We have free will. We have the ability to decide how we're going to live, whether to live in the light or in the dark. We get to choose whether we're going to live right or to live wrong. That's our choice because we are created in the image of God. That means that there will be good on our planet and there will be bad as long as you and I have the decision. But God did that on purpose because here's the reality. You never really know if somebody loves you unless they have choice. You never really know that. So if I was forced by shotgun to stand up at my wedding and marry Kate, would she ever really know if I loved her or not? No. All she would really know is that I'm afraid of buckshot. That's all she would really be sure of all the days of our marriage. She wouldn't really be sure of my love because I didn't have to really choose her. I was just not choosing something else, right? And that's why God gives us free will. Even when we were perfect in the garden, we had choice. Choice to serve him or not serve him. That's why there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the only way for God to know whether we would choose to love him. Are we going to say no to the things that we know we should say no to and say yes to the things we know we should? It's in those moments that we discover and God discovers whether we are truly in relationship with him or not. And that's why at the end of the chapter, after God says he's going to come and fix this, after he says, I'm not going to judge you, I'm trying to save you, and he's trying to put the world right, and that Jesus has come into the world as light on Christmas, he says that those who live in God's truth will understand the light. On the flip side, you and I have a challenge that John 3 declares to us that often we get this light and darkness all confused in our mind and in our life. And the reason we get it all confused in our life is because we are actually addicted to denial and illusion. I love the way that was phrased. That as mankind, as men and women trying to live today, we're actually addicted to denial and illusion. And isn't it so true that the enemy of our soul is all the time trying to get us to deny Christ and trying to get us to live a different way than God wants us to live, to live a different lifestyle, to believe different things other than what God's word says, and to live an illusion instead of in God's way. It's interesting that this is always a part of our life, caught up in this denial and illusion. In fact, I think it's becoming more a part of our world than ever before. For instance, for thousands of years, nobody had social media. But today, we do. And social media is like a different life I can live, right? It's like this whole other illusion that I can be a different person. A different person than I really am. But today our technology affords this illusion to not only be a thought, but to be a reality. And all the while we're denying who we really are called to be and live for Christ. In John 12, 46, 
Jesus said, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. See, here's the reality. We're either living in the dark or we're living in the light. And in the dark, there's all kinds of creepy things. In the dark, there's death. In the light of Jesus Christ, there's eternal life. So without Jesus, we're still stuck in the darkness. But with Jesus, we have light. And we also have the second thing that is directly connected to light. And that is life. Light is always connected to life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light is always connected to life, physically and spiritually. Now, I'm not going to expound on this a whole lot because I'm going to preach my Christmas Eve service all about this idea. That the light of Jesus Christ is always connected to life. We see it physically on our planet. We see it spiritually in God's word. And it happens in our life all the time. So my invitation to you is to come back to Christmas Eve service and learn a little bit more. But let me just end it with this. In a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have real life today and eternal life tomorrow and forever. The light is also a prophetic statement. Just like I am was a prophetic statement. When Jesus says he is the light, that is also a prophetic fulfillment. It matches our theme verse for this Christmas, Isaiah 9-2. This is a prophetic moment where Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This great light and this light that dispels the deep darkness is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this great light. It's we talked about seven before. Here's eight. There's all kinds of prophecies like this. But when Jesus says he is the light of the world, he is saying, I am the great light that destroys the darkness. You don't have to live in this deep darkness any longer. You can now live in Jesus Christ. And you begin to see everything around you that the enemy is trying to do is just a way to get you to deny Christ and to, is all an illusion to get you to live a different way. So Jesus said, I am the light in the last phrases of the world. The last part of the phrase, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now this last section is significant because the planet that you and I sit on right now is his world. It is his world. In fact, you and I are just passing through it. Peter says that we are strangers in the world. It's not even our home. Our real home is wherever you and I spend eternity, but that choice is made now. Whether to choose Christ or not, this actually isn't home. But this is God's world. It's his. He's actually the owner of it. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. 
You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. In Psalm 24, 1, it says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In Colossians chapter 1, it says the Son, Jesus Christ. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. <laughs> what the Bible teaches us over and over again is this, this world, this planet, it's not ours, it's God's. And Jesus left his place of power. Wherever that is in the multitude of billions of universes, Jesus left his place of ultimate power in our universe where he's worshipped constantly, where he's not limited in any way, shape, or form. He left that condition and came to rescue us from our condition. He was born of a virgin. We're going to celebrate that on Christmas. That's the whole point. That the light of the world came into our darkness. That he came to rescue us. Not only to rescue us, but to set us free from everything. Why did he do this? Because this is his world and he loves his world. He loves those who are living in it. He loves who are coming into it tomorrow. He also likes to take care of the things that he holds together. Colossians says that he holds all things together. Often, scientifically, we, we say things like, we don't really know how the universes all spin in different ways and in different cycles and there's trillions upon trillions upon trillions of planets and stars and none of them bump into each other and they're all in perfect order and nothing chaotic ever seems to be happening. Why is that? It's simple. Jesus holds it together. The creator of all of it holds it together. But that's a big scale. The little scale is something you have to decide today and that is Will you let him hold you together? Because <laughs> sometimes our world isn't in so much order, is it? Sometimes we've let too much darkness in our world. And so now our world is chaotic and confusing. We're denying God. We're living in illusion. And Jesus wants to ask you this morning, would you let me come in? See, we won't ever be able to deny the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. There's no way to diffuse that argument. That's who he is, and that's who he always will be. But the question is deeper than that. The question is, is Jesus the light of your world? He is the light of the world, but is he the light of your world? 
Because Jesus is such a gentleman. He won't come into your world until you ask him to. He won't come into your world and heal your world until you say, come on in. He won't save your soul until you believe in him. He won't fill you with his Holy Spirit, the greatest gift we've ever known, until you ask him for him. He won't bless your life until you're one of his kids. And his peace and his joy and his love and his goodness, his righteousness, all of these things that we really all want, they're not a part of our lives until we let them come into our life because Jesus won't force himself on us. So my question for you this morning is this. Will you let Jesus be the light of your world? Will you let him dispel the darkness in you? Will you let him in? Would you bow your head with me? As we close, I'd like us to take a moment to answer that question. There are moments in our life that we don't get back. This is one of those moments. It may happen again, but you won't get this one back. And so I'm going to ask an important question. Do you want Jesus to be the light of your world? Do you want a real, authentic, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do this morning... I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. God's going to see it. Maybe you've never said it before. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before. And you'd like to say yes to him now. My second question is this. Some of us believe in Jesus. We know him. We read his word. We come to church. We fellowship with believers. But there's still a little dark area we just don't let Jesus into. We haven't let him be light there yet. And this morning, your question is the same Will you let Jesus be light in your darkness? If there's something there, you know it. And you just need to say right now to Jesus, Jesus, come be the light in that dark place. I'm just going to ask you to respond too. Just raise your hand and say, Jesus, that's me. There's a dark place in me. And, and I want you to be the light in that dark place. I want you to heal it. I want you to restore it. I want you to break it. It's a stronghold in my life. I, I, I ask for forgiveness for it. I'm confessing it to you now. And I pray that your light would come into this dark place in my life and heal me, set me free. You can put your hands down. Lord, this morning, 
we are committing to the fact that you are the light of our world. Each of us, we need you. We need you to be the light of our world. We know you're the light of the world. That's undeniable. It's an, it's an impossibility for anyone else to be the light of the world, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the creator. No one else except you. We acknowledge that. It's not even something that we can deny. But Lord, we're selfish. And sometimes we choose to go our own way, to do our own thing. And this morning we confess it to you. Those moments that we go our own way, that we do our own thing, we give it to you right now and we ask you to heal it. We ask you to set us free from it. And we ask you to empower us to, to live in the light instead of in the darkness. To live in the truth, to live in your righteousness, to obey the promises of your word instead of the illusion of our culture. That tells us life would be so good if we lived this way or if we bought this item or if we had this lifestyle. Lord, would you deliver us from that illusion? And would you set us free into your truth and into your grace and help us to live in the light of your love? We ask you for that strength this morning. We believe it. And help us to celebrate it this Christmas. In the name of Jesus, we pray. If you believe that, would you say amen with me this morning?